Hi, we're here from Curiosity.com to help you get smarter in just a few minutes. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you'll learn about how digital technology is changing the way we listen to music and other audio from a special guest, writer, musician, and podcaster Damon Krakowski. We'll also answer a listener question about whether there's a limit to how much a person can know. Let's satisfy some curiosity. You listen to things all the time, whether it's this podcast or music on your favorite radio station. But you probably don't pay that much attention to how you listen. One person who has thought about that is our guest for our Sunday Sounds miniseries. Damon Krakowski is a writer and musician, and you may have heard him as the host of the Ways of Hearing podcast, which was part of the Radiotopia Showcase and is now a book from the MIT Press. In Ways of Hearing, Damon examines how the switch from analog to digital audio is changing our perceptions of time, space, love, money, and power. Lots of things. In part of our conversation, Damon explained how digital processing and other technology is removing noise from what we hear. For example, you can use editing software to remove unwanted sounds from a podcast recording or stretch or change the pitch of an instrument's notes. So that's a good thing, right? Well, Damon says not necessarily. Here's Ashley's exchange with Damon on noise. If we're around noise all the time, what do you think the loss is if we don't have it in our recorded media? Well, noise is communicative. It's we gain meaning from it. And uh, it's as communicative as signal. So I'm using these two terms, signal and noise, and I think it's useful just to give a quick definition, which is, it's very simple, and it's this is throughout engineering. This is what, how engineers use these terms. Signal is what you are paying attention to, or what you want to be paying attention to. And noise is everything else. But that is a definition that depends on shifting attention, right? So you may be listening to my voice right now, and that may be signal in this environment. But if your doorbell rings and you need to go speak to someone, then my uh, voice blathering on our podcast becomes noise because it's in the way of what you need to pay attention to at that moment. In analog space and also in analog media, noise is present and it's up to us, each of us, as we listen to or exist in these spaces uh, to define what is signal and what is noise. Take, for example, um, an LP. An LP comes with surface noise, uh, of the needle bouncing along the, the the grooves, and you can't eliminate it. You can buy very expensive equipment that minimizes it, and engineers are always trying to minimize it, but you cannot physically eliminate it. It's impossibility. It's part of the medium. And that's true with all analog media. Think of the radio and the static on the radio or the, the ways that the station comes in and out and you hear other things crossing with it. Think of our old analog phones that allowed for all kinds of noise coming in through the microphone that were not the voice, the signal, that they were meant to transmit. You got the background noise, you heard where people were, and you never asked, where are you? I mean, for one, they were wired to the walls, but, but also <laughs> even if you were on a payphone, it was very clear when you were on the street in a payphone, it was very clear where you were. So signal is what you want to hear and noise is what you don't want to hear. But that quote unquote unwanted noise still tells you a lot about what you're hearing. By the way, in this context, analog refers to anything that's not digital. So that can include an analog recording, radio signal, or even just talking to someone in real life. Here's Damon again on what that means. Let's take a very 
clear example that everyone has just in face-to-face communication. You express yourself in conversation, and you can have a range of meaning indicated by, by things that are other than the signal of what you're actually saying to someone, right? You can have your, you can arch your eyebrows, you can change your stance, you can have uh, all kinds of body language or facial expression that add meaning to the words, right? Now, all of that is not important to a phone conversation, right? So the signal of a phone conversation is only the sound of our voice. So we've lost, just by going on the phone, a lot of visual clues that may be impossible to communicate or may be considered unimportant. But then go from the analog phone, where even as you lose the visual clues, you still have all kinds of audio clues that are coming from the face-to-face situation, like a sigh, like an um, intake of breath, like a... Um, a pause that is not uh, dead silent, but has some kind of sense of someone thinking, right? Now, in digital communications, all those bits of audio are eliminated, right? They go to zero. The cell phone will pick up your breath only when you make a big deal of it, when you push it up past the level that the cell phone is eliminating as noise and push it into the level of signal, (gasps) right? I can breathe for you like that and it will come across. But Otherwise, you're not hearing my breath. The sound of our sighs, uh, changing the tone of our voice, making it more breathy or more delicate or making it louder and more boomy, they're all evened out by the digital signal processing, DSP, of the microphone sensitivity. So the mic is the same, but then the digital signal processing is what changes the sound we hear. And that's what eliminates the noise. If you turn the digital sound processing off on a cell phone, it is amazing to hear how much the cell phone mic really hears. So by eliminating these small sounds, right, they've uh, increased the reach of, the, of the, what, what we ostensibly we want from the phone, our, our, our meaning of our words. But at the same time, we've reduced the sense of our meaning of our words because we no longer have them framed by these small sounds, these sighs and whispers and breaths that indicate something to each of us and actually communicate quite a bit of what we're trying to say to one another. So what's the right balance between signal and noise? That's the question Damon Krakowski explores in his new book, Ways of Hearing. You'll hear from him again next week on our Sunday Sounds miniseries. And in the meantime, you can find links to the book and more from Damon in today's show notes. Today's episode is paid for by NHTSA. It can be a little frustrating, especially if you're in a hurry or running late to find yourself at a railway crossing waiting for a train. And if the signals are going and the train's not even there yet, you can feel a bit tempted to try to sneak across the tracks. Well, don't. Ever. Trains are often going a lot faster than you expect them to be. And they can't stop. Even if the engineer hits the brakes right away, it can take a train over a mile to stop. By that time, what used to be your car is just a crushed hunk of metal. And what used to be you, well, it's better not to think about that. The point is, you just can't know how quickly the train will arrive. The train can't stop, even if it does see you. The result is disaster. If the signals are on, the train's on its way. And you just need to remember one thing. Stop. Trains can't. We got a listener question from John on Twitter, who wrote, On your March 14th episode, you mentioned we always have room in our brains for more knowledge. I know it wasn't meant to be a statement of fact when you said it, but it got me thinking. Is there a limit to how much we can know? Great question, John. This is actually a pretty contentious topic in neuroscience circles. You'd think that since the brain is a physical organ, it must have some limit to how much knowledge it can store. 
I mean, a brain only has about 100 billion neurons after all. If the brain acted like a computer hard drive and only let you store a single unit of information in each of those neurons, you'd run out of room pretty fast. But that's not actually how memory works. Instead, memories and information are stored in the connections between neurons. Neurons send out little branches that connect with branches from other neurons at a junction known as a synapse. When you recall the capital of Luxembourg or where you parked your car, that's thanks to signals flowing across this connection from one neuron to the next, sometimes continuing over entire networks of neurons. And get this, each of your 100 billion neurons can make thousands of those connections with thousands of other neurons, which can make thousands more themselves. So how does that translate into the memory capacity of the human brain? That's hard to say, since memories don't come in individual bytes like they do on a computer. There are a lot of estimates out there, but even on the low end, it's pretty huge. Somewhere between one terabyte and two and a half petabytes. By the way, one terabyte is about 1,000 gigabytes, and one petabyte is 1,000 terabytes. It's a lot. But in reality, it's kind of useless to even talk about the brain's memory capacity in terms of a hard drive. Many regions of the brain are involved in many different memories at the same time, while other regions aren't used for memory storage at all. But at least for practical purposes, there doesn't seem to be a limit on the brain's overall capacity. There are a lot of champion memorizers and memory savants out there, and nobody's ever seemed to have found the brain's memory limit. But there is a limit to your short-term memory, the part of your memory that only holds on to information for a few minutes at a time. That limit is seven. Most people can hold on to seven units of information before they start to forget. We'll include a link to our whole article about that idea, known as Miller's Law, in the show notes. Thanks for your question, John. Before we wrap up, we want to give a special shout out to Mohammed Shafaz and Dr. Mary Yancey, who are executive producers for today's episode, thanks to their generous support on Patreon. Thank you so much. If you're listening and you want to support Curiosity Daily, then visit patreon.com slash curiosity.com, all spelled out. Join us again tomorrow for the award-winning Curiosity Daily and learn something new in just a few minutes. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Stay curious. On the Westwood One Podcast Network.